I'm Joan Tassoni. I'm Martha Kehoe. And we're the directors of Gordon Lightfoot, If You Could Read My Mind. Today, I am joined by Martha Kehoe and Joan Tosoni, directors of the new documentary, Gordon Lightfoot, If You Could Read My Mind. Thank you for speaking with me today. How are you both doing? We're great, thanks. Great. Martha's a little out of breath because she just rushed up here, but other than that, we're great. <laughs> um, so, your new film, which I watched and I absolutely loved it, it premiered at the Hot Docs Festival in May. Can you maybe talk a bit about how that premiere went and the reception it received? Tony, you want to start? Sure. Um, well, I was a bit overwhelmed. Um, it was a very wonderful reception. Of course, Gord is revered, if I may say so, and he, he attended both screenings um, during um, the festival. Uh, so, of course, people were pretty excited to see him. Um, and people do seem to le- like the film. We're, we're more than pleased by people's reaction. Uh, they come away, I think, liking Gordon, but I, people have told us they know a little bit more about him now than they did before, and that, that was our intention from the, from the get-go. The other thing that we like about it is that it led a lot of people to his music. Like, certainly he has many fans, but um, some people that have seen the film, uh, you know, knew his hits and they were positive towards him, but they didn't really know all the breadth of his catalog and just how many songs he's written. And some people didn't realize he'd written the ones that he had written. So it's nice when people email us the next day and say, I've been listening to Gordon Lightfoot on Spotify all day. <laughs> that is awesome to hear and and it's really good that a lot of the things you just touched on I'm definitely gonna ask uh, some follow-up questions about it but I guess the first thing I want to know is what was the impetus for wanting to make this film and having a subject matter in Gordon Lightfoot well I think Martha and I will both agree that uh, he's an iconic figure in our, our musical history in our Canadian history really um, so many, many people have wanted to do the film. Uh, we've had a long association with him and through the years, I guess he trusted us enough to do it. Uh, so we just felt privileged. Let's go ahead. He, when he was ready, he said yes. And away we went. Yeah. It's been a dream project for Joan and I. We're both, um, big music fans and we, uh, worked a lot in a television doing live music. Uh, music series and also a music documentary so for us it's been a dream to do it and as Joni says we've known Gord for a while and uh, it's always been there as something we really like to do interesting um, so I, I wasn't familiar with the fact that you had a, a prior relationship with with Gordon himself but what sort of level of knowledge did you really go in 
not just him as a person, but sort of his career in sort of the the music scene that he was a part of, especially that that Yorkville folk scene in the '60s. Well, we we did uh, Martha and I both collaborated on a documentary in the early '90s for uh, CBC called Country Gold. It was a three-hour um, documentary on uh, Canadian country and folk music. So of course, Gord had a big part of, of that, a section of that show, and um, we did an interview with him. And Martha did all the research for that uh, project. And of course, when you do research, you get a lot more information than you can use in a short um, piece. Uh, so all that um, preliminary research came in handy. But again, uh, we did a lot more research and our, our, we hired researchers to dig up some more things. But Martha really had the basis of uh, Gord's career also being a big fan as well. Uh, yeah, so and we were also privileged at the time of Country Gold. We also interviewed Ian Tyson and Sylvia Tyson, Marie McLaughlin, um, some of the players that were involved in that early Yorkville team, um, Ronnie Hawkins. You know, it's just a subject that Joan and I both love, and we're both fairly knowledgeable about it. But, of course, um, as Joni said, while we were doing the film, first of all, we geared up to do the film, and we put our first proposal together. Um, and we've just been calling those ideas, or I guess honing those ideas is a better way to say it, um, up until the point when we started to do the film. And then, um, Dakota, I don't know if you're, I mean, you're a writer, so I think you'll identify with this, The filmmaking is very similar. You sort of start out with an idea and a plan, and sometimes things take on a life of their own. And um, with visual research, um, you know, sometimes you just get that perfect clip, and it just helps you. It's like the missing piece of the puzzle that you really wanted to have. We decided that we didn't want to have a, a voiceover, because we didn't want to have the film seem pedantic or educational or like um, that we wanted the learning to be very experiential and um, sort of a thought process that you go through. Um, and to come from the, from the tr sincere words of other people. Absolutely. And we knew that if we were interviewing properly and um, the right kind of people, that they would tell these different parts. Of, of who Gord is, what he is, his stages of his career, as well as who he is as an artist, and also, of course, his cultural impact in Canada, which is kind of unique. Yes, and one of the delights of doing the project was that our interviewees were very enthusiastic to do it. You know, he, uh, those artists revere him. It's not just the public that reveres Gordon Lightfoot. It's the artists who look up to him and and who he's influenced, you know, if you, I mean, know you saw the film, but Burton and Randy going to that little club, Burton says he changed our lives forever, and, and, and I believe that to be true. He inspired uh, young songwriters, um, and so they revere him, and we, were, we got people to talk about him very easily because they do feel that way about him. Yeah, and you can see Alex and Gaddy from Rush, you know, they say he created a new feeling about who Canadians were internationally, and it also raised the bar of what expectations were for any um, Canadian act. They thought, wow, we can have hit records and, and um, have a big following in California and be on the radio in the United States and tour there. It was almost unheard of uh, for someone to stay in Canada and have a career in the United States until Gord came along. So 
And Sarah McLaughlin also says in the film, um, you know, every songwriter and even musician that followed him has been impacted somehow by him just because um, he was such a, a strong figure for people um, as they came of uh, mature age, you know. And also, one thing um, that I enjoyed talking to people about um, during the film was not just his songwriting, which, of course, I came into this going, songwriting is so important to people, the words mean so much, but the sound means so much to musicians. He was always a meticulous musician. Uh, he was always meticulous with his band. And um, that was an interesting thing to me, too. It's uh, as... Uh, who, who says it? it's not just the oh, I think it was Murray said it's not just what he said it's the way it sounds and that that was really interesting to me well that was where he's talking about his Canadian mm-hmm. which is even more interesting mm-hmm. yeah that, that's absolutely fascinating I loved all the wide-ranging people that you managed to get to appear in this film not just the Canadian legends like the ones you had talked about but a lot of really interesting American artists as well. Uh, was it just as easy as picking up the phone and calling out to people like Steve Earle uh, and said, yeah, I want to talk about Gordon Lightfoot? Well, sort of yes and no. We, uh, you know, we, as I said, we had been trying to do the film for several years. And when we finally got the green light, it was late May of last year. And um, it was a little bit tricky because the summer is such a busy touring time for artists. Um, but apart from that, so there were several people that would have wanted to comply and give us an interview, but they were on just exacting tour schedules and we couldn't come up with a date. Um, but the people that we did, um, Steve Earl has been a very vocal fan of Gord's and uh, he tells a story, uh, which we couldn't include in the film, but it was kind of funny about the first time he played in Toronto, he asked the record company guy um, about Gordon Life and the guy said, well, let me make a call. And then he said, Gordon Light was expecting you. And Steve Earle went to his house. And he was just like, and he thought the record company guy would come in, but instead he just dropped him off and said, we'll see you later. <laughs> he just <laughs> kind of like knocked on the door. At which point they had a sort of song writing or, you know, song trading session. So I think they also had a lot of respect for each other. So, um, yeah, it was very easy. A guy like Greg Graffin, he was thrilled to participate and he kind of, moved heaven and earth to come up with a date that we could meet him we actually met him in LA um so yeah thanks we we tried to show people that were sort of representative of people that were close to Gordon but like Steve Earle represented his songwriting Greg Raffin represented people that are from a different genre and a different generation but were still feeling the influence you know Bad Religion was primarily it was an early punk rock band in LA so as disparate as the type of music they are, Greg Raffin felt so personally towards Gord and his music, and it was so much a, a, a part of his childhood, and he says in the film, too, he learned a lot about the songwriting, how to take it from basic chords into a, a larger orchestral piece, which is kind of exactly what Gord talks about when he breaks down how he writes a song. Mm-hmm. And another thing, I um, we talked about Gord's generosity with us. He gave us a lot of his time and was very generous. But um, we found over the course of the film, too, how generous he is to other people. Uh, not even generous. He doesn't. It's not generosity to him. Uh, for example, he'll go and to, when Steve Earle's playing a concert in Toronto, Gork will just go and, and be there and not make a big deal out of it and then just go yak with him afterwards. 
you know, and I think people like Steve Earle really appreciate that. There's no big wall between them. He's not an unapproachable artist. He shares. That's really interesting. How uh, how did the filming process with Gordon work? Like, how much time did you get to spend with him? Was it spread out over a long course of time, or was it just all in one chunk? Um, kind of a little bit of both, I guess you could say, because we started, um, as I say, we started in pre-production in May, and we uh, the first thing we shot actually were the days at Nassau Hall, um, which you see a portion of in the film. There was three dates there at Nassau Hall, uh, we shot that, and then we did a couple of interview days that were followed up fairly close within two weeks of that in July. Um, but we ended up, we sort of worked through till the end of October. October yeah, it was October, October 17th, because we also wanted an opportunity from our own point of view to be able to circle back and feel if we had missed something or if something had cropped up in the edit suite. We started editing uh, around the end of um halfway through August, so we wanted to give ourselves a little bit of... We've been around the block before, Dakota, so <laughs> it's always good to schedule one more interview after you've got something done in post. Interesting. Uh, and particularly because we didn't have a narrator, uh, we wanted to be able to fill in those uh, things that we felt were still missing um, by the end. Yeah. Obviously, through your, your research process, you probably had a, a pretty good picture of what Gordon Lightfoot as, as a person and as an artist was. But when you were doing your interviews, not only with him, but with everyone that, that is in the film, did you have certain plot lines or stories in mind? Or did you just let everyone sort of take it where they want it to go and talk about the things that were important to them? Um, again, I think you have to leave leeway for both. We... We did long interviews with people, Dakota. We sort of set them up to know that, I mean, depending on who it was and how close they were and how much they would know of his history. Um, so certain people we knew would be knowledgeable about certain parts of his history. So, you know, we interviewed Bernie Fiedler about his time at the riverboat. We, but somebody like Murray McLaughlin, who was active as an artist um, and was, and the good brothers say, you know, they've gone through a lot with Gord, and they know Gord closely. So we would definitely wanted to hit on some subjects that were a little closer to home with them because they know him well. They aren't speculating when they talk about what his reaction was to this or that. They actually lived through those times with him. So, and then you can imagine that, um, for instance, Nicholas Jennings, who was his biographer, uh, we really teed up a lot of specific questions for him based on filling out, as Joan says, sort of difficult story points um, that we wanted clarity on. Um, so it was pretty, you know, it, it's a bit of a schema when you approach interviewing people for a documentary. Um, and, and I sort of tried to approach Gord a little bit that way too. Like I would say to him, okay, the first day we're going to talk about, you know, everything from Aurelia to the end of the 60s, and I'd try to keep them in that zone, you know? <laughs> I'd try to keep them in that zone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to also be open for what people spontaneously say. You never want to, oh, you'll have to go in with a plan, because I'm sure, like, you are going into this interview with a plan. You have to have a plan, and you have to have a little bit of a concept of the story that you would tell and what you think that person might give you. But at the same time, that's the beauty of documentary and having the amount of time that we had to make this film 
um, just like with each subject, uh, we were we were quite um, we were very fortunate that people uh, felt it was an important enough project to give us a substantial amount of time. Except for somebody say like Alex Baldwin, who said to us, "You can have 20 minutes with me in and out," and we we said that's perfect. That's that's all we need. Because Alex Baldwin wasn't to tell us what it was like for Gord, you know, in the 60s in York, in Yorkville. He was going to talk about it uh, as an international fan. You know, back then, there was very gummy music and gooey music, and then a guy comes along with the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgeralds. You know, you go, wait a minute. And the winner is Gordon Lightfoot. It was a richer type of music. It was like a Simon and Garfunkel almost, you know, that kind of a Cat Stevens, people who wrote really very pretty music, but there were very smart lyrics woven into that. You know, there was some poetry here. This is a guy that sang poems. Yeah, that's really interesting, and, and that's something I can definitely relate. You know, you try to come up with a, a bit of a roadmap, but if something interesting comes up, you just got to let those people speak. Absolutely, and, and you know, there's nothing more delightful uh, when you've researched a project thoroughly, when you're hearing something new or a, t- a take on something you weren't expecting that person to have a take on. But we're also very lucky, like I said, for instance, Murray McLaughlin, he's a thoughtful guy, he's a smart guy, he was around for a lot of that stuff um and he's an articulate speaker he's a writer himself so he's an articulate speaker so he said a couple of key statements that we were like well that was a solid that was a a solid comment on that exact thing we wanted him to comment on you know he made key statements in as martha says an articulate way you know Uh, so we were grateful for that interview very much so that's great to hear. Now, you, you talked about Alec Baldwin being able to uh, speak about Gordon's music from a more international perspective. And that's something I really noticed when watching the film was his music seems to be really appreciated by artists from all over the world. What do you think resonates with these people when his songs contain, one, such deeply personal lyrics and also some very Canadian imagery? What about it attracts so many international artists? Well, again, I think that those songs uh, really do transcend. And that was a a little something that Greg Graffin said from Bad Religion. You know, he said, I can understand. He comes from the Great Lakes regions. And people sometimes ask us, what did we learn on this film? And we knew a lot before, so we didn't learn a ton. But that was something that we learned, that people around the Great Lakes really hold Gord as an artist who expresses things that they also feel and they're a northern place, you know. Bob Dylan is actually from Duluth, Minnesota, which is way north of Toronto. It's close to Sault Ste. Marie, I believe. Um, so that these were northern people who said he really spoke to us as well. Um, so that was quite a, an interesting thing. But I think, you know, great songwriting and personal songwriting is universal. Absolutely. And in a way, the more personal it is, the more people can identify it almost because it's feelings that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And with the United States, for example, we don't share a Southern 
uh, uh, view with them, but certainly we share a lot of the landscapes, certainly the western landscapes and the weather and the northern and western landscapes are the same, even the east. And really, east as well, really. Maine, so, um, so those images that he conjures up of forests and water and all those things um, are universally understood by people in many countries, really, but certainly in the United States. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, we also learned that seemingly everyone has a cover of a Gordon Lightfoot song. What was the, the most surprising <laughs> cover that you had heard or learned about in this process? Um, well, I think we knew a lot of people had recorded If You Could Read My Mind because that song was extremely, extremely popular when it came out. Tell Martha why we included the spot next, for example. <laughs> well, that was just kind of funny. The Spotniks are in for like about a second, and we wanted to include them because it was a funny thing, because it was in the middle of a montage of these sort of extremely well-known acts like Barbara Streisand and Liza Minnelli and, and Kenny Rogers and people. But the Spotniks, their song, they did a, uh, they were almost like a, a German surf band. And I, of course, I'm a bit of a surf band lover. And uh, so they were an instrumental band, the Spotniks, and they were from Germany. And their version of If You Could Read My Mind, which is an instrumental, was kind of the unofficial anthem of the Munich Olympics in 1972. So that's something that I found out, you know, very easily on on, um, Wikipedia. But it was cool. And we thought, you know, that's pretty significant because probably a lot of German people were pretty impressed by the Olympics of 1972. And that song would have made an impression on them. That's so interesting. Cool. And then we sort of included, um, you know, we did what we called sort of the indie montage of people, artists that you wouldn't, you know, Gord, uh, for all that people revere him, some people find his music a little square, let's say, or um, it was considered to be maybe easy listening or adult contemporary at a certain point. But um, you can look at these edgy bands who've covered Gord. And uh, it's just very interesting. Again, he has this appeal that transcends um, his fan base, kind of transcends what you, what you would think. And another delightful thing about Gord is he appreciates other people doing his music in no matter what way they do it. Um, at the, at the uh, party after the premiere, we had uh, a bunch of artists who did Gordon Lightfoot songs, and they all had a different take on it. And Gord is visibly delighted by hearing different takes on his song. Yeah, he really loves it, which is kind of fun because, uh, you know, some people are critical, um, although I don't know if this is public knowledge because he said it in an offhand uh, comment to us that uh, he was talking about Elvis covered Early Morning Rain, as you see in the film, but he also covered um, For Love and Me, and Gord was not happy with how that was done. He said, I don't know what they did with that one. And that's like, that'd be like a very strong negative statement by Gordon. You know? yeah. I don't know what they were doing. <laughs> but he, he rarely says something like that. He, he normally really compliments any version of his songs that people do, and he's quite delighted by it. Yeah, he gets a kick out of it, for sure. That's interesting, yeah. He does seem like a endlessly positive person. Well, you know, he's doing pretty well at 80. <laughs> um, I think he's had his share of the ups and downs, as you know, and 
uh, and as we try to show in this film, but I think he is very also, as we say in this film, you know, he has that moment where he says, what a, what a run it's been. I've been happy to be alive and grateful for every moment. Uh-huh. And so I believe that to be true. <laughs> you know, he considers himself lucky uh, to have been, been given. Um, I think he recognizes his gift. He says that in the film. He recognizes it, but, but it's not a brag on his part to say, I have a gift. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a thanks. Well, I, I'm appreciative that I was given this gift. Plus, he didn't squander it. Yeah. He worked so hard at yeah. his songwriting. So he definitely had a talent. He definitely had a genius to even say for it. But um, when they talk about the 10,000 hours that it takes to become a genius, Gord for sure put that in. He 100% did his, his hour. Very dedicated person. From, from a very young age. Well, he definitely seems someone that you can really admire all the work that he puts into and, and the outlook that he has in life. Um, there are tons of, of old interviews and performances in this film. Did, did partnering with the CBC help in locating archival footage? Absolutely. And um, like um, Joan said, you know, we had done Country Gold for CBC back in 1990 and I had worked on uh, uh, several shows that CBC Joni worked on many, many as well. But I, I worked on quite a few that were archive-based. And uh, I'm just a natural snooper. I love that kind of stuff. So um, we had a good feel for what was there. But we had an excellent researcher in place at CBC who was also very dedicated to us. You know, he wasn't uh, paid by us. He was just doing his job as a CBC archivist. And he really bent over backwards to help us in every way and to find things up to the very last day. Like, I kept editing, saying, kept emailing him saying, this is the last request, and then I would say two days later, uh, did I say the last request? Yeah. Um, because uh, CBC has been inordinately supportive of, of this and uh, opening their archives for us, and they let us use their material um in kind so that was very very useful as well we had a pretty much a cart launch with cbc archives and that was just an incredible gift and an incredible part of the film well the other thing to be mentioned is that uh, the cbc um now and in its earlier days did a lot of documentaries so there was a bit of a treasure trove of documentary i mean they did a couple of them that we pulled from with gord you know wandering around that interview with his parents um, and all those things that was really great to draw upon. Yeah, and they did them well. That, you know, we're foreign wise special. We, we used a lot of that. So, so the CBC did had a lot of documenting of his career, and um, and also they were very um, helpful to us in, in um, bringing to the screen. And they've been great partners. You know, the the film will be airing on CBC later this year and towards the end of the year. And, uh, the and the documentary channel. I was living in a basement apartment, which was very nice, and I, I loved it there. I had a little room, and I had a desk, and I had a chair, and I knew that I had to sit down and do the work. And then all of a sudden, one day, I popped off with early morning rain. And that turned out to be one of my biggest, most important tunes. In the early morning rain 
I was absolutely blown away by by all the different footage that you managed to get because I have rarely seen a documentary like this where there is something from every point of his life and it's not just, you know, either a talking head or a voiceover being like, well, back in the day it was like this. No, you actually saw him as a young man performing his first shows like when he was a backup singer on the country and western TV shows. That That stuff is phenomenal to see. I know, it's so fun, isn't it? We love it. Like, we love it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I'd say that uh, our original cut was about uh, an hour longer than the final film, of course. So when you consider that we had to cut an hour of material, um, I mean, we added some uh, uh, along the way and everything, but it was painful to cut some of the things because there is a treasure trove um, there. And... We also had access to a lot of black and white photography, and some of that was from Gord's own collection, where we actually had the physical stills. And, you know, Gord, I mean, Gord's such an artist that, you know, even though Gord's a bit of an uncomfortable person in many ways, you know, he, he's comfortable with his guitar on stage. That's, that's where he's most comfortable. And the rest of the time, but... He is a great photography subject, and, and some of the black and white stills are just so evocative, either of the, the time that they were taken and just the time in Gord's life and just, like, what he was going through. You can really see a lot of things just on his face in a picture. Yeah, that was yeah. something I wanted to, to ask about, is that there's also tons of archival photos in this film. Um, how did you sort through them all and select the ones that you did? Or was it just simply just you have a bunch and just whatever the most clear ones that are telling the, telling the story that you're you're trying to tell? It's a little bit, again, it's a bit of both. We obviously, um, we group them into ages, like, uh, the, the the ages of Gord, you know, the 60s, the 70s, early 70s, later 70s, early 80s, later 80s, um, and he changes quite a bit. He really does. I mean, in our original pitch, we sort of said, you know, this film's going to take us from where he was a Christian choir boy to, uh, you know, the the, the sort of uh, 70s, 70s excess yeah. in stadiums, you know, and uh, yeah, and the road warrior that he is now. So, um, and the photographs really do tell that story. So, um, again, it's a little bit, you know, summer signposts. We would have ones where he's on stage. We would have ones where he's in California, in Toronto, <laughs> here, there, and everywhere. So, we we had literally hundreds. So, <laughs> we worked at it, Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly did. Well, and, that's good. Know, uh, we had a team of people that worked on us, worked with us on clearing all these images in all this film and paying for it all. Um, so yes, making the film was a real labor of love for so many of us, not just Joni and I, but our whole team and extended team. Everyone felt, you know, hey, this is something important and this is something cool. And this is a person we, we really want to work at making this a great film. So we were very, very fortunate to just, it takes a village, Dakota. Yeah, to have a wonderful executive producer, John Murray, and our producer, um, line producer, Deb uh, McDonald, uh, our, our office person who did just everything. We don't even know. Manager. <laughs> manager. We don't know what to call him, even, <laughs> he did more than production manager. 
Josh Demers, um, and and our researchers and our edit oh our editors were so I mean we we have a love for these people through uh, this process, and I'm sure any documentarian can tell you that. Um, uh, they care for detail. Everybody contributes something. And, and uh, one of the delights is, is when someone discovers a new thing that you haven't seen before and everyone gets excited about it. it it's really, really fun. Yeah, we had a great time making it and we had a great team to make it with us and we felt very supported by them. And even so, we had our moments of pain and anguish. Um, but yeah, we were all very committed to trying to make you know, the best film we could make about God. And in fact, we did have a deadline, too. It, 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 it's an hour uh, and a half documentary. Um, and lots of times people take a lot longer to finish it. But we we sort of um, had a deadline, met our deadline, and had a, the great thrill of opening at Hot Dogs. Yeah, which that was, was a big thrill for all of us. Terrific. And so people sometimes ask us, Dakota, you know, what's it like to co-direct, co-produce, like how did that work? And I just said, well, thank God. We both felt like, thank God there's two of us because there's a lot of work to do in the yeah. time frame. <laughs> mm. So, and, and so we, uh, we, I like to think we have complementary skills, Martha. <laughs> I do, I do. I think we do. Yeah. Well, anyway, sorry, Dakota, we're just running the interview now. you got to watch us. <laughs> That's all right. You're giving me tons of great content, so I'm fine with that. Um uh, in the finale, you, you weave together several eras of a performance of a single song, if you could read my mind. What was that process like from an editing standpoint? In the end, uh, all along it was a concept, and in the end it was relatively simple um, because we had footage from each of Gord's stages of age, um, but we also had comments from Gord that we felt were appropriate uh, uh, to almost finalize the film with, that, that were um, things that he said that revealed himself a bit and, and what his, not only his um, positive thoughts, but his, his uh, regrets. Or introspection. Yeah. Introspection. Good and word. If, if you can read my mind, like, we wanted to call the film that. Obviously, it's an iconic song, so it's great. But Gord's songs honestly do reveal so much about him. It's kind of not funny, but it's, it's interesting how much they do reveal because he isn't the guy that necessarily tells you that in conversation. You don't always see his depth when you speak to him casually or even at length. Um, and if you could read my mind, it's just so perfect for Gore because he is a bit of an impenetrable person. Um, so right away, um, we just knew, you know, it's like he created the old, his own best title for the film. <laughs> like everything yeah. that he's done really reflects yeah. him. And people say it, Ronnie Hawkins said it, oh, you can't, you can't read, read his, his mind. mind. You can't read his mind. Uh, even he can't read his mind. No, it comes from somewhere. Um, and that is why the song is universal. It's not about Gordon Lightfoot, and he'll be the first person to tell you that. It came from his experience. It came from his... So he was inspired uh, with his creativity to make that song. But it's a universal song that everyone interprets in a different way. Uh, the lyrics leave you it leave. I think uh, Steve Earle one thing he said about and it wasn't about if you could read my mind it was about um, 
sundown, but you, you he kind of leaves some details out, or I think he uses enough poetic language that it leaves itself open to interpretation. So that's why so many people have, take a personal meaning from his songs because they're poetic. That's what poetry does. On a on a, a craftsman level, though, um, I would like to comment because that's something that Gord cares about. He cares about the most sort of quotidian part of the job, and what he would, what I would say to him, or what I would say to you about cutting those various versions together, is Gord's meticulously performing that song at every occasion, and he would probably try to keep it within the tempo that he has decided over 20 years is the temple he wants it to be at. And certainly the key. And yeah. he, um, he is very, very um, obsessive about his performance, and uh, he would be very obsessive about performing that song because he knows it's meaningful to people, and he knows it's a masterwork of his, not in a I'm-so-great kind of way, but he wants to do his own work justice, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can so you can pick a gourd uh, any, any any day, and you could probably cut if you could read my mind from the '80s to the '70s to the '90s to the you know to 2019. He doesn't always have the same strength, but he has certain things that he likes to keep the same because he wants people to have the experience of enjoying that iconic moment. Wouldn't you say, Joni? Yes, and he saves that song till near the end of his show. He'll, he'll, he said that before, and he'll say it again. Um, because um, Martha's talked about this, so we've both talked about it. He, there's a palpable hush and feeling of awe in the audience when that song begins. When those first notes on the guitar begin and people hear it coming, it's, it, it kind of makes the hair on your arm stand up. Wow, that that's really fascinating to hear about. Um, switching gears a little bit, something that I found quite interesting was Drake is mentioned twice in the film as sort of being the the current paragon of Toronto's musical identity. What parallels do you see between artists like Gordon Lightfoot and Drake? I don't know if you can draw a parallel necessarily. I mean, that scene where Gord's driving in the car and he sees Drake's billboard. That happened totally spontaneously. Yeah, I really like Toronto. I really do. When I moved down to Toronto, I was like about 20 years old. There's a Drake signboard right up there. I would have bought Drake's album, the one where we're sitting on the top of the, the, the tower, the CN Tower, did you ever listen to that one? And all you gotta do is listen to his records and you know why is doing so well. It's very, very good. Very, very professional. Well-written, well-orchestrated. Good everything. We were driving down Young Street to have him tell us about some of the bars that he used to play in and what the Young Street music scene was like. That was really why we had him in the car and we had him driving on Young. And he just looked up and he saw the billboard and he said what he said, you know, Drake. I bought his record to see what all the fuss was about. And now once I bought his record and listened to his record, I knew what the fuss was about. So that's just Gord maintaining an interest in world-class musicianship. And, like, he is that guy. He has, he buys, you know, 
CDs of people. Uh, he's got a little bit. He's not quite up to speed on his streaming, I don't think. He says, one of these days I'll join the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> He'll say that. One of these days I'll join the 21st century. Um, so, you know, it's just more, I, and I think Bernie Finkelstein's comment was more just like the excitement of a city like Toronto when they have somebody who's wrapping them that they just are really, really excited about, you know? They're like, wow, this guy's like a top talent, and he's from Toronto. And also, he, he's always been a, a promoter of Toronto, yeah. as is Drake. As like is Drake, yeah. He, once once Gord moved to Toronto, he was a Torontonian. Oh. I mean, he's, he'll always be an Aurelian, and uh, yeah, that's Aurelian in will always uh, be his home. Yeah, and, and, hail, and Aurelia will always hail him um, as theirs. But Toronto hails him as theirs as well. Yeah, very much. And he, he loves Toronto. And I think that comes across in the film. Yeah. And so for the Torontonians around, it's kind of like, you know, Gord, it's just, um, it's more that. It's not so much as a musician, but as somebody who's kind of famous, has a voice, people really like them, and they are hometown boys that, that rep the town. So it's just fun. It's like a, having a hero from your hometown, you know? And I don't know if you know this, but Drake, Drake is, is building a home right across from Gord. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. He is, yeah, he's building a giant mansion, a manse. I don't even know what it is. It's yeah. a chateau. Well, I think it's common knowledge, so I don't think I'm revealing anything out of turn. But Yeah, so oh. they're going to be neighbors. They'll be neighbors. Maybe they'll have a jam session together something. It'll be different vibes, I think, in the two homes. Very different vibes. I'll be curious to see what sort of block party they throw. Yeah, exactly. No kidding. <laughs> um, all right, I guess uh, I'll sort of wind things down on a bit more of a lighter note. Um, what are your favorite Gordon Lightfoot songs? Did it change? Did you like have a song in mind when you started the film, and then after all this is over, you learn more about them? Did that change at all? Yes, I think so for me, in a way. I mean, again, you just familiarize yourself more. I think Gord's early hits are quite iconic, and, and I was of an age where I had older sisters that um, were collecting and listening to Gord's first record. Um, so I was extremely familiar with his early work, and I think that this has given us a real um, appreciation of the breadth of his career and the and just the quality of his songwriting as he grew, uh, you know, as a, as a man and, and an artist that um, we really, we, we would find also that our editor would sometimes put songs in that we didn't even know. And we were kind of like, you can't do that kind of. And then we would grow super fond of them and love them. And, and that's um, a, an interesting thing. You're saying his growth and everything, but from a very, very early age, his thoughtful songwriting is astounding. And, some of absolutely. those songs that people don't even know have become very dear to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he just, and you know, honest to goodness, at certain times, like our assistant editor, Barbara, who was incredibly dedicated to us, uh, she would say, I hate, she's from Brazil, Dakota, and she would say, I hate this early morning rain. I can't even sleep, I just hear it in my head. <laughs> So, um, you know what I mean? Because we were so immersed and we were listening and hearing the, the bits in the film every day that it does get a little obsessive. But his earworming is 100%. He is amazing for having catchy, 
catchy melodies and, and even words um, that you just stick in your head for days. And uh, like I say, some of our loved ones began to complain because it was just too much. <laughs> when you live your life hearing the wreck of the Edmonds Fitzgerald in your mind's eye over and over again, you're like, wow, that's really a lot. <laughs> Well, that is excellent to hear. So, I just want to know what is the the future of this film? If you can, if you can talk a bit more about that. Uh, well, it's opening on Friday at the Hot Dogs Ted Rogers Cinema for a couple of weeks in Toronto. In Toronto, and then it's uh, got several dates in Ontario uh, and on the uh, out west. The East Coast dates haven't been announced yet. We're hoping for those uh, soon, but uh, we're hoping it opens all across the country. And, of course, as we mentioned, at the end of the year, it'll be broadcast on CBC and the Documentary Channel. But we also hope that it's going to be um, distributed throughout the United States and Europe. We have people reaching out to us now that are um, at film festivals and um, rep cinemas um, in the United States and England. So, you know, we're, we're hoping that the film has a broad release and that people get to see it. Because um, we, we made the film to bring Gord, you know, uh, talent to, to a new generation, to obviously to those who love him and revere him. Uh, we wanted a film they could enjoy, but we also wanted a film to stimulate interest in him from people who um, don't know his music as well. So we would love uh, people to uh, enjoy the film and be Gordon Lightfoot fans and be streaming his music, um, in, you know, in the 21st century. But he's also he's also uh, uh, says he's bringing out a new album this year too. So it's all part of a, a steamroller process that <laughs> we hope doesn't stop for a while. <laughs> <laughs> that would be some great synergy. I, I know. Speaking as someone who. I'm I'm of a younger generation, obviously, than than most people that grew up with Gordon Lightfoot. I knew the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and a few other bigger songs, and who he was as a person, and sort of this cultural identity aspect of what we hold him up to be. But watching this film, I certainly learned so much. The two of you brought a lot of care and attention to really tell his story, and you brought in some really insightful people to sort of fill in the gaps when Gordon was either too modest or wasn't aware of the sort of reception that he has on other people. So so thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. That's nice to say. Just lovely to hear. Thank you so much, Dakota. Well, what uh, do you have any other projects that you're working on right now? Do you, do you plan on working together again? I want to know what your futures hold for you both. Well, we would love to have the opportunity to do uh, more music documentaries or doc- arts documentaries. Um, and uh, we're actually going out for dinner tonight with our executive producer because we're hoping to plot the next chapter. Absolutely. I have another career as a multi-camera director as well, so um, I'm uh, doing a multi-camera project in the fall for CBC. It has been announced. It's called Battle of the Blades. I did four, I directed four seasons of it. So uh, that will take up a couple of months in the fall, uh, and I hope I know I'll have a lot of fun doing that. But as Martha says, we'd really like to. We we had such a great time doing this, and uh, we'd love to pursue the whole idea further. That is awesome. Was this your first time working together again since 1990? No, no. We've worked together off and on for years, but um, in the last kind of like 10 years, we haven't worked as closely 
Um, the TV business has been a little up and down, Dakota. <laughs> no, don't print that. Um, so, yeah, we've been just doing our disparate things. I've been doing a lot of writing and development. Joni is um, usually more, like she says, a live director doing live events and uh, music stuff and whatever. Uh, but we just always have worked well together in this kind of way. So um, Joan actually invited me onto this project, which was very generous of her, and I and think that I did. She's <laughs> glad, Dakota. Just write that down, Dakota. <laughs> very glad she did. No, I'm just joking. Yeah, we, do, we do work very well together. We have always shared similar sensibilities, and I think that's important when you're doing work. Um, and then we do have our different strengths and areas of interest, and I think that, that it, it, it helps round out the... the um, the piece and our editor Alex Schuper is also a, a really um, talented professional in our industry and, and he added quite a bit to, oh, God, to our mix God bless him. God bless him. He really did. He's, so a, he's a real artist and he totally understood what we were doing. Like you know how it is when you work with like minded people and everybody's got this desire to do their best. It's just a treat. It's a treat to collaborate. Yep. Well, that is excellent. Thank you both very much for taking the time to speak with me today. This was a fascinating interview to go with a fascinating film. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old-time movie about a ghost from a wishing well in a castle dark or a fortress strong. With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I'm a ghost Once again, thank you to Martha Kehoe and Joan Tassoni for taking the time to speak with me about their film, Gordon Lightfoot, If You Could Read My Mind. The film will air on CBC later this year and can be seen currently at the Hot Docs Theatre in Toronto. The film is also playing across Canada. For more theater listings, please check out Kinosmith, K-I-N-O-S-M-I-T-H dot com. Thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show and arranging the interview with Martha and Joan. Special thanks to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music. You can follow the show on Instagram and on Twitter at ContraZoomPod. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and that includes Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, Podcast Addict, Overcast, and more. Make sure you search for ContraZoomPod. Feel free to send me an email as well and let me know your thoughts on the show at ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed speaking about this great film, and it's something that you should really check out. Whether you are a fan of Gordon Lightfoot, a fan of music, or just like a good movie.